This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I teach philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Maisha Cherry. Maisha is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. She specializes in moral psychology, social and political philosophy, philosophy of race, and feminist philosophy. Maisha also hosts the popular Unmute podcast. Her new book has recently been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Now, according to a broad consensus among philosophers across the ages, anger is almost always regrettable, counterproductive, and bad. It's something that we need to overcome or suppress. It's treated as something that involves an immoral drive for revenge or some naive commitment to cosmic justice. It's often said to involve a corruption of the person. Anger eats away at us or plunges us into madness. However, given the state of the world, it's difficult not to be angry Thus, the shelves of your local bookstore are filled with self-help titles that promise to release you from anger and bring you peace. But maybe anger has been underappreciated. Perhaps we failed to make the right distinctions between different kinds of anger. And maybe we've therefore overlooked the kind or the kinds of anger that are productive and appropriate. In the case for rage, Maisha Cherry argues that we need to give anger a chance. After distinguishing different forms of anger, she defends a kind of anger that she calls Lordian rage, which she argues is central to anti-racist social progress. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but we'll begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hi, Maisha. How you doing, Bob? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm good. Just woke up from a nap, so I'm, I'm like full of energy, but also fatigued, if that makes sense. You come up with a word with a combination of both. Uh, well, uh, I'm really excited to be talking uh, with you today about your book. Oh, likewise. But before we get into it, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, you've already mentioned kind of like the academic tidbits. I guess um, I say a little bit about myself that people may not know, only those that are close to me. So... I love all cool. things Wes Anderson, all things <laughs> Francois Truffaut. So 
uh, all things Ozu. So I, I became a cinephile during the pandemic. So I like to, that was a flex in some way, <laughs> um, but also a description. Um, right. Also, I'm a huge record collector and jazz is really the most treasured aspect of my record collection. So I'm currently uh, collecting um, all the original Donald Byrd albums. So if anyone is listening mm-hmm. and they're thinking about getting rid of their record collection and they have some original <laughs> Donna Bird uh, collections, you know, send me an email. Let's let's talk. Let's chat. I would really love to have them in my, in my collection. That's fabulous. Um, can, can, can you say something about how you got into some of the philosophical topics that animate you? given all your interest in art? Yeah, so you you would think that because of that, I would be interested in aesthetics. And one of the things I promised myself is that I'm not going to mix ple- business with pleasure. <laughs> So I'm like, so I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my little hobbies, and I don't want to feel like when I do my hobbies, I'm also doing, I'm doing work. So it's interesting because some of my, some of my early publishing stuff was in uh, the Open Court Public Philosophy series, and mm. a lot of the stuff required us to kind of watch film. So there's a few collections that I was in, such as like The Wire, and such as uh, On Just a New Black. And I remember in preparation for those essays, I would have to watch, like rewatch. I was already fans of the series, but I have to rewatch it. Not mm. as a fan, but as a scholar. And it dawned right. on me, I don't really like this too much. Like I, I like to experience <laughs> the pleasure of art and not really the business of art. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I don't do aesthetics. It's like, I just want to enjoy, I want to enjoy these pleasures without having to think about them from an intellectual from an intellectual perspective, but 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 I guess in connection, I mean, my interest in emotions don't really fall far from the aesthetic tree, right? right. Um, you know, because Jesse Prince, you know, his his love for aesthetics is also rooted, at least one of his aspects of love for the aesthetics is rooted in the emotions, and so in some ways, I can cheat um, mm. by intellectually focusing on the emotions um, in public life, but just not in aesthetic life. I see. You know. Um, uh, I have a similar story about uh, cinema, particularly. My okay. wife is, has, for a long time, for most of her life, actually, has been obsessed with films. And, um, you know, when I met her, um, I, you know, I thought films were movies. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And so, you know, for the, you know, 30 years or whatever we've known each other, she's kept a long list of the the films that she can't believe that I'd never seen before I met her. <laughs> she's, one uh, she's one of those people. <laughs> she's like, you've never seen Casablanca? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But thanks to her, I've developed a um, an interest in uh, an interest in film that I would call a philosophical but non-professional interest, if right. that makes sense. So I have no aspirations to be a philosopher of film, but um, uh, I do. I've found ways to appreciate film in philosophical ways, if that makes sense. Right, 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 right. Um, well, cool. Um, uh, why don't we talk about the book? How's that? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so um, I'm going to begin at the beginning. Um, now, you, you mentioned this in the book and, and, and you puzzle with it. Um, it's rare to find so many philosophers of such different traditions and historical epics agreeing about anything. But it seems that there's a surprising almost almost consensus to a person that anger is bad (laughs) (laughs) you know can you tell us a little bit about that so here's the thing i'm 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 sympathetic to that assessment right 
And and so, but I, I think I think I think it's, it's a broad stroke view, right? So there, there's no doubt that I think that some manifestations. I mean, particularly if you come if you come from an environment where you've seen people act out in rage, whether that's your parents, then you can you can easily come to that conclusion, and you'll be tempted to to paint all anger as such, right? If you come hmm. from a, a politically contentious state. And where people are just constantly angry, and the citizens are constantly angry against one another, and the, you know, all this multiple division is—it's easy to come to that come to that conclusion. But I think the mistake that is being made, and the mistake that I think that has been made, that just because an instance of anger is could be destructive, could be dangerous, uh, could be worrisome, it doesn't necessarily mean that all manifestations or all instances of the emotion um, is indeed uh, problematic. And I think I think one of the things that I like to do is do a comparison is that we have a tendency to look at love and its varieties. Um, so we can admit that, hey, you know, uh, there's different versions of love connected to its object and connected to its intensity. So erotic, aphilia, you got uh, agape. Um, and we're able to make the distinctions between those two. You got requited and you got unrequited, right? You got mm-hmm. unconditional and you got conditional, right? We can make these distinctions, these very careful distinctions when it comes when it comes to love and then assess it accordingly. And I think, I don't know what it is. I think, I think we fail to do the same thing with anger. And I think I'm trying to challenge people in the book to look at anger's varieties. And when we're able to do that, then we can see a variety, recognize a variety through the distinctions that I suggest that we should make and say, you know what? Yeah, this instance is indeed problematic, uh, but this instance is not, or this type is not because of these particular reasons. So in some ways, I think I see myself, I see a project in the book is kind of to build up our emotional intelligence intelligence, I think more specifically to build up our angry <laughs> emotional intelligence <laughs> so we can stop painting anger and, and, and broad strokes. Uh, so we can start really disagreeing <laughs> with each right. other in the ways that I kind of, that I kind of lay out. I think, I think the view is just too simplistic. It's an overgeneralization. And uh, I think the conversations can be much more interesting uh, when we see, when we see anger in its varieties and we're able to make proper distinctions based on the kind of guidelines that I provide in the book. Right. And so is the, you know, it, just to pick up on the the analogy with love, where, as you had mentioned, you know, we distinguish different kinds of love by thinking about different objects or the different aims uh, and, and the rest. And so I take it that, or having read the book, uh, uh, I'm inviting you to, to say just a little bit more about how those kinds of distinctions between object and aim and intensity uh, and maybe some of the motivational aspects help you to um, you know, delineate the differences between um, different anger types. Yeah. So one of the one of the, the things that I do in the book is I kind of start off saying, "Hey, I think there's a variety of angers that can be experienced in the context of political injustice," um, and I'm I'm just going to offer up a few and, and get us kind of thinking about what makes these different types different from from the other. And so, uh, one distinction that I make is that we can we can evaluate anger um, according to uh, what it's directed at. So, is it and I'm very much concerned with the context of racial injustice. Is it directed at races, racist attitudes, racist policies, or is it simply directed at scapegoats? <laughs> right. Um, is it directed at a systemic problem, or is it just simply directed at a person um, who targeted you, and you're not really concerned about how this manifests in other contexts and other other people who are much more vulnerable? Right. So it's no doubt that it, it, it's the targets that's going to help us make these distinctions. Um, I mean, you mentioned aim. So what is the what is the aim that someone has? Um, what is it directed at? Um, so is it directed at hatred and elimination of the other? 
right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is it directed at, at a transformation of our world so that we can live in a, a greater society in which there's equality um, and there, there's justice? Um, is, is one just concerned about justice just for themselves, right? So you got your aims. Um, but also um, another way that we can distinguish it is by the perspective that kind of influence it. And this is kind of like a cognitive kind of feature here. It's like, you know, what is, what is, what is a person thinking about when they have this particular anger? Like what is a general, you know, one might say kind of mini worldview uh, that's really mm. not only framing the way in which one looks at the problem or, or uh, the problem, but, but what is, and I, I think that's a very important piece. That's cause that's going to help us also um, try to figure out what is the anger. So the, the anger that I defend in the book is loading rage and the kind of perspective that I say that in, in, in influences that anger is kind of an inclusive perspective, right? This kind of notion that, hey, you know, I'm not free until everyone gets free. And that's going to have a, a tremendous effect on not only who is directed at, but the kind of actions that we undertake in order to bring about a kind of transformation. But for other people, right. I mean, the, 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 the perspective could be very exclusive, Right. Um, mm. So, you know, that's how I kind of get us to kind of think quite differently. Um, you know, what is it aimed at? Uh, what is what is the target? Uh, what is the perspective that influences it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those kinds of things. I think it's five futures. Um, it's those kind of things that's going to help us make these 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 important distinctions. So I kind of start off with the book trying to be clever in a sense with the titles that I give to these these anger types. And so I kind of talk about kind of a white rage. And when I think about what happened at the Capitol, when I think about um, the storming of the Capitol, let me be a little bit more specific here, the storming <laughs> of the Capitol, the insurrection uh, that took place at the Capitol on January 6th. When I think about what took place in Charlottesville, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good example of what I call white parade, right? The aim is to eliminate yeah. the other. Um, the, 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 the perspective that, that kind of in, in, informs it is, you know, we just, we just want justice for ourselves, um, Right. Um, this is a real sum game kind of way of thinking about what uh, the goods of our society can can give. And you, you know, you can con- contrast that with what I call kind of a narcissistic rage, which seems, you know, very different from that more destructive kind and quite similar to the kind of virtuous anger that I'm defending in the book. But it's quite not there yet. Um, and mm-hmm. then I say, hey, loading a rage. I mean, it's directed at racism, racist, racist policies, it, you know, aims to transform our world, has an inclusive perspective, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the that's the that's the, the, the rage that I defending the book but it's not to say that there's not other kind of um more i guess one can say virtuous kinds and i just lift one up um and defend right. one in one in the book perfect do you um do you see that uh the different kinds of uh yeah you you you, you delineate five different varieties of rage rogue rage and wipe rage and resentment uh narcissistic narcissistic and lordian um uh do they differ um, in their targets in that it seems as if uh, what you call Lordian rage, which I want to um, I- I ask you to, 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 uh, to talk about in some more detail in a moment, but what you call Lordian rage looks like it's anger that is aimed at policies and systems, um, whereas the other forms of rage, or at least some of them, look like they're aimed at people. Is that a way to make well, well, a distinction? It could, is... it could be both, right? So... Um, you know, you know, feminists is, you know, a right to say this. I think Alice McLachlan, excuse me, <clears throat> says this about, you know, there's time, some moments in which particularly when you experience uh, racial oppression, sexist oppression, you don't know who is to blame. 
right? right. You, your, your anger is directed at the circumstances that you find yourself in, right? That could be brought about by racist policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, so, so I think, I think, I think, I think, but that's not to say that, that loading and rage is only angry at circumstances. I mean, I'm, I'm borrowing from, from um, Audre Lorde's uh, uses of anger essay, and she starts to talk about kind of a variety of things, racist people, people who are complicit in racism, um, racist attitudes, racist people. So, so it's, it's persons and it's circumstances. I mean, that particular essay um, in which she's uh, trying to give an account of the uses of anger, I mean, uh, her anger is in response to uh, feminist allies, white feminist allies right. in the struggle, right? So it's very much directed at people. Um, but it's not exclusively so because sometimes we just don't know who who it, who it is to blame. So it's it's people and it's also also circumstances, I think. Um, and I, this is how I think, I think what makes Lonely and Rage um, a little bit more productive than the other kinds, I think sometimes, is that there's one, it's, it's one way to say, hey, I don't know who's responsible, so I'm just mad at the circumstances. I think what can allow those other kinds of, of rage to go, to go awry, is that it's not even, it's directed at the wrong people. <laughs> so, right. so it's like, hey, it's politicians who's putting these particular policies in place, but they're le- making you blame it on, or making you think that it's immigrants that you ought to blame. Um, so right. scapegoats, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I suggest that Loading rage gives us kind of at least a closer epistemic picture of, about uh, who the who the correct target is. Great. So let's, um, you know, it, it. I found it really helpful in reading the book to think about Lordian rage in contrast with these other varieties. So I want to sort of take a take a step back and ask you to say a little bit more about each of the other varieties. So rogue, wipe, resentment, and narcissistic rage. Can you run us through just what you see as the main ways in which these other varieties um, are contrasted with the kind of uh, anger and rage that you want to uh, that 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 you develop uh, the theory of which you develop and and promote, and maybe some of the ways in which the narcissistic rage, as you just said a moment ago, is sort of almost there but not quite. Yeah. So there, there seem to be, you know, I want to be careful with saying one feature is 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 more important than than the other. But if we want to talk about mm. kind of trends or kind of like similarities between the other less productive kinds, it goes back to that that perspective that influences that I was referring to. And um, as well as the aim, right? So you think about if your aim is to eliminate the other and the perspective that includes it is kind of like the zero-sum game, right? Mm. Then that's going to have an effect on the actions that you engage in, right, to bring about the end result, right? So you know, we started this conversation talking about why do people think anger is so destructive and dangerous and why we should get rid of it? I think, I think those destructive kinds and those particular features kind of answer that question, right? Mm, um, so, right. so if I think, you know, uh, that, that you should be eliminated and, and particularly because I believe that we can't share resources because there's not enough resources, then you can mm-hmm. imagine that I am going to storm the Capitol, <laughs> right? Yeah. I am going to, you know, kind of express words such as you were not, you will not replace me kind of language, right? Right. And to kind of right. see, I mean, if, if any similarity in that sense, you would see, you would get the sense that rogue rage, white rage, uh, will have those kinds of, those, the, those kinds of features, even perhaps even resentment rage. So that, that I think that's kind mm-hmm. of like a, what they share in common, that kind of similar kind of aiming and perspective. Then 
narcissistic rage, it may seem like narcissistic rage is not like those other kinds. And it's, it's closer to, to Lordian rage. So one of the things I say about narcissistic rage is like, hey, the two errors that it makes that make it the case that it's not yet Lordian rage is that it fails to see. Now, you can imagine, let me just give you an example of a narcissistic rage mm-hmm. experience. So the example that I kind of use in the book is, um, you know, there was a video that went viral a few years ago of a white man who, in, who was in at an airport. And I, I don't know what happened, but he's being arrested. And all you can do is hear him screaming in a viral video, you're treating me like a black person. You're treating yeah. me like a black yeah. person. And, um, you know, you got to kind of think about this. I mean, Bell Hooks, I mean, she uses, I borrow the narcissistic rage terminology from her, and she uses it to describe black elites who are doing well until they get stopped by the police. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. who have segregated themselves from the, you know, kind of working class communities um, until they get stopped by the police. Um, right, and right. so they are in mad, kind of similar to the guy at the airport. They're mad at the ways in which the police is treating them. Um, so their anger is directed, but not at the systemic issues that perhaps mm-hmm. um, kind of problematic that some police officers engage in. Like they are completely oblivious to that and really don't care and is indifferent to that systemic problem, right? The target of their, their anger is you have targeted me, right? right. Particularly right. because I'm supposed to be the exception in some source, whether that's because of my class or whether that's because of, of, of my race. So you can imagine kind of the, the perspective that influences it, particularly when it comes to narcissistic rage. For me, it's kind of like this kind of hierarchical kind of view of oneself, that one thinks of oneself as the exception, Right. Right. Now, that's not, oh, you don't want to eliminate the other. It's not even a zero sum game kind of thinking. But as long as you have that particular thinking, that's going to have an impact on the kind of work that you're going to engage in. You're probably not going to engage in a lot of social action to kind of bring about change for everyone. Right. Because because one is only concerned with oneself. So as soon as that case get 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 settled. Right. As soon as that lawsuit gets settled. Uh, as soon as that one police officer, you know, apology for the way in which they treated you, the problem has gone away for you while people still suffer, right? right? Um, so it's almost there, but it's not quite there just just yet. And you you kind of contrast that with Lodian Rage. Well, Lodian Rage is very attuned to, listen, it's it's racist officers, racist individuals, but racism, racist policies, it recognizes that there's a systemic issue. Um, it has hit you today, but it's hit somebody bef- uh, yesterday, and it's going to hit somebody right. the next day. Um, it, it's attuned to these particular things. And so that's going to have an impact, right, um, in the actions that one engage in in order to bring about a, a true trans- transformation. And that's why I suggest that that's the kind of anger, anger that we need, uh, because it's going to motivate a particular t- kind of action. So you can slowly kind of see kind of, you know, one of the things that I say in the book is that, hey, I understand anger critics. But please know that based on these distinctions that I'm making, it's white rage that you should be concerned about. It's resentment rage that you can be concerned about. You probably haven't thought about narcissistic rage. You may even be proud about your narcissistic rage, but trust me, that's not going to get liberation for everybody. And it's not even going to get the kind of liberation that you think that you need for yourself. So let's try to, let's, let's arrive at the Lordian kind. And then throughout the book, I kind of add some additional kind of um, argument for why not only does Lordian rage has these particular features, but it's doing a kind of, uh, of work in the world um, that I think, um, um, that, that that I think can bring about um, a true change. Right. Perfect. So uh, let's pick up on that because you know it, it seems then that one of the, the one of the ways in which you uh, in the book 
sort of make the distinction between Lordian rage and the other forms, particularly narcissistic rage, is by talking about the way that emotions can represent the world right. Right? or involve right. a representation of the world. So uh, as you were just explaining, it looked as if n- narcissistic rage doesn't, in, doesn't represent the world in the way <laughs> that Lordian rage right. does, right? Because the Lordian rage is motivated or involves or part of the syndrome is a representation of the world as um as ra- you know, as racist right as um uh, uh as a place where actions are motivated by people with power on the basis of certain ways of understanding white supremacy certain ways of understanding their place in the world vis-a-vis other you know other folks who look different from them so on and so forth so can you tell us a little bit about um both that that that, that representational aspect of lordy and rage and then i do want to hear um uh, uh, more about the, the the account you give of the of the value of Lordian rage and the way that it lifts people up and expresses or 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 or, or, or uh, asserts value and these sorts of things. Yeah, and it's interesting because before I make those latter kind of claims that you just alluded to, I do I have to motivate the represent representational represent representational point. Right, 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 right. right because that's gonna that's gonna ground the, the what we call kind of the fittingness kind of claim. Right. Um, sure. The appropriateness kind of claim. And without even going so deep in, in philosophy of emotion, I mean, you know, I, I kind of take the view that emotions represent um, the world. Right. So like the humorous, uh, something that is funny represents the funny. <laughs> right. right um, yeah. The kind of thing, you know, sadness kind of represents the, um, you know, the sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and anger represents the, the unjust. It represents the awful. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and one of the things that I simply claim is that, you know, you can imagine if you were a judge and all these aim, all these anger types come to you and say, hey, I'm right in what I'm saying. My anger's my anger's apt. You know, and Rogue Rage says, no, my anger's apt. I'm right about the world. Um, and then, you know, so how would you make the decision as the judge? And, and one of the things that I say is that, you know, Lordian Rage is more is is more likely to represent the world than these other other types. And there are several reasons why. And when I say represent the world, particularly if Lordian Rage is responding to racial injustice, which I suggest that these anger types kind of arises in a sense of injustice um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, w- one of the things that people say is that, Hey, uh, I mean, they doubt the fittingness condition of anger, right? They say, Oh, mm-hmm. either you don't have anything to be angry about or you're exaggerating, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I found that to be very, very important to motivate before I continue on with the argument in the book. And so I kind of, kind of lay out in, in a lot of detail about, listen, if it's anger in response to racism, I scapegoats, because even scapegoats within itself tells us something epistemically um, about that right. it's not really hitting at the true target and it's not really assessing uh, the reality of the world, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so when I say that 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 loading and rage is directed at racism, racist, racist attitudes, um, I got to prove in some way <laughs> um, that those That's things right. are real things in the world, right? And so I, I do spend some time. Um, because I knew that I knew that I had to even even in the times in which we were living, I wrote the book when Trump was still our president and you have these right wing groups and, and these hate groups arising. I still had to find myself doing work to try to convince the person who still says that racism is a thing in the past. <laughs> right? right. That's the kind right. of kind right. of mindset that I was that I was that I was working in. 
And I was simply saying, hey, I mean, uh, and particularly for, in the U.S. context, the context that I'm, that, I'm, I'm, that I'm focused on in the book, is that, listen, you know, when you see, and, and mind you, I'm also writing in the context of Black Lives Matter. So, so right. you know, you think about these people who are angry at racism. If it indeed is the case that Lordy and Rage is representing the world, what is this world? <laughs> um, right. And so, I, you know, just begin to explain the kind of, kind of racism and neo-racism um, um, that has um, arisen in our particular context. And, and, and I spent some time kind of describing that because um, it's clever. Racism is clever. It also changes over time. And so the mm-hmm. racism that, you know, your parents probably saw and witnessed um, perhaps is not so explicit today. And we are so quick to say that therefore racism does not exist. And so I already spent some time right. kind of laying that stuff out. And basically I'm, I'm doing all that work, which may seem like repetitive and redundant for people who've already believed me, um, particularly because I want to say, so when people come to you with claims that they are angry at this racist world that we live in, <laughs> um, you will be more, more apt to believe them. Right. right. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I'm very careful is I'm, I'm not saying what I'm saying is that, you know, given the reality of the United States and someone has loading and rage, um, their loading rage is more likely to represent that, that particular reality. But it's not to say that everyone who is angry and is always angry at racism, believe me, because what I just saw really did happen. The experience that I had at the mall was, I mean, of course, I mean, it's not to say that mm-hmm. every instance, no one will be lying and no one will be um incorrect about what they previously assess, but they're more likely <laughs> if they have learning areas, they're right. more likely given, given the reality in the world in which we, which we live. And, you know, and that, what that is, that, that becomes a springboard, right? Because already, you know, one of the, one of the things that I saw in the criticism is that, like I said, you know, the, the, not only is it, it is a criticism of, of anger at racial injustice, that what you see in the world or what you're saying happened didn't really happen. It's not really the case. You're being oversensitive. You're bitter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that it was important for me to kind of lay that as the foundation to say that this anger is fitting. And based on that springboard, I can begin or continue to make or build a stronger argument. So I want to say that loading rage is in response uh, to this racism that is real in the world. So it is a fitting response to a reality that is just messed up. Um, So out of that, as a result, let me tell you why it's useful. Let me tell you why it's essential to the struggle to kind of combat that particular reality that it it represents. Um, So I simply say, you know, you know, and I can say this in brief and perhaps if you have more, more questions about this. So one of the things that I say, even despite the features that I talk about, um, I want to say um, that loading and rage is essential to anti-racist struggle. Number one, because this fitting anger has a tendency, has a community power to ascribe value to the marginalized. Um, and that's an important thing, thing, thing to do. I mean, anger mm-hmm. has a community uh, function. It, it protests. It... Um, reminds us that wrongdoing has occurred. It holds people accountable. Um, so it, it's, it's very much communicative, but it is also a way of valuing and a way of showing value. And particularly, you know, I'm writing the context in the book, context of, of reality in which Black Lives Matter used to be controversial to say, right? right? And hence the All Lives Matter uh, retorts. And it's still, for some people, that's still controversial to say. And it's still people who still believe. I mean, the wealth gap just goes to show you that not all mm-hmm. lives matter. I mean, so, so one of the things I just wanted to be very, very clear about from the very beginning of the book, uh, that what I find beautiful about Lording and Rage and why I think it's essential is that, uh, you know, oppression just makes you 
doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It, it's dehumanizing. Uh, racist treatment is dehumanizing. And so one of the things about anger, as much as we think that it's always speaking to the wrong door, one of the things that it does say is it says to the marginalized, your life is valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I also say connected to value, not only is their life valuable, um, but it also reminds us um, that justice is valuable. And so it awakens up awakens us to the fact that justice does not exist in this particular context, um, but it's valuable. So it needs to exist. So it describes values in those particular ways. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's essential. Um, another reason why I think it's essential to anti-racist struggle um, is because of its motivational component. Right. I mean, remember, like I said, that these anger types are going to motivate some kind of action. I mean, this is just what anger is. I mean, it's, it's, it has an approach tendency. So why sadness uh, or fear may make you want to run away or retreat, you know, anger just has this component um, that is going to make you approach the target of your, of your anger. Right. Um, and so people have been wondering um, or been claiming throughout the literature and that, you know, hey, anger is motivational. Anger is motivational. Use your anger. Get motivated. Get fired up. Um, <laughs> but there hasn't been a lot of accounts of why that is the case, like what was happening there. And so that kind of led me to really go to the social psychology literature and cognitive science literature and try to figure out um, what's going on in the brain there. What's going on in the right. individual when, when an individual is, is angry? that would lead them to be motivated to do anything. And one of the things that I found is three things in particular, and I, and I suggest, and I argue in the book, uh, that these are what I call the fuel features of anger, right? right. It, it helps us make sense of why it's so motivational. So one fuel feature of, of Lordian rage um, is self-belief. So when angry, um, you believe, so it's kind of, too, let me just say, self-belief, optimism, and risk aversion. So right. uh, the studies show that uh, when you're angry, you believe that things can change and you can change it. <laughs> I mean, that's just the reality. <laughs> I have experienced that in my right. life when it has nothing to do with injustice. Um, right. So you believe that things can change and that you can, you can do something about it. You can change it. And you're also willing to engage in, in certain kind of risks in order to make those things happen. I mean, one of the examples I like to use, uh, there, there's moments in my life where I may get frustrated um, or just angry about, you know, the way the state of affairs, whether that's career wise or whether that's whatever. And it's in those moments where I just believe, okay, no one can change my life but me. I, I know, I, I know I can mm-hmm. make things better. And, um, and so what I start to do is, is start to make moves, take risks that I probably wouldn't take if I wasn't in that particular state, state, like email people, apply right. to jobs. I mean, just do <laughs> stuff that I probably wouldn't do under that particular phenomenon. And, that, you know, that in that particular state, I become, you know, it's a motivational state and those things are, those things are particularly happen. And so as a result of those few features, it really made me think about two particular feature, uh, figures. Think about Ida B. Wells and I think about um, Sojourner Truth, two black right. women uh, who were born in slavery who basically lived their lives, you know, struggling for, for black folks, struggling for, for women. And you think about Ida B. Wells, who through her journalism, you know, brought attention to, to anti-lynching campaign and was able to, to, to keep fighting despite her press being burnt down. Think about Sojourner mm-hmm. Truth, uh, born in slavery, quote unquote, uneducated woman, but still uh, gave these speeches uh, and, and, and really was a, a black feminist to the highest regard, you know, striving to get mm-hmm. rights for black women. And I think about, you know, I, it's 2022, 
you know, I'm a black woman. I have a certain kind of boldness with me that I think really is a privilege of my time. I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so when I think about, when I think, I mean, there's certain things that I can say and do now that really is the benefit of people who come before me. Um, and it, it makes me think a lot of times about, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people like to say, well, if I was living in those days, I would have, you know what? I don't know what I would have done. I doubted right. about what I had to press. Now, I, I think I think I'm a force, but I ain't that kind of force, right? <laughs> I'm not the Ida B. Wells kind of force in her particular context, right? So just trying to understand these women, like as much as we praise them, I really was trying to understand where did their courage from come from? And I, and I think both of these figures, you know, they were described as being angry, right? right. Um, and so just trying to make sense of, oh, it's because of their anger that they was able to do these things, right? That they were motivated based on these few features. Um, and that's what kept them, kept them going. And so without it, without that anger, without those few features, um, it makes me wonder, I mean, what would Ida B. Wells' life look like? What would Sojourner Truth look like? And, and the progress and the gains that they were able, able to make. And so that's one of the reasons, another reason why I think that anger is, is essential. It has these few features that motivates you to do a kind of thing in the world. And, and remember, if, if Lordy and Rage has the original features that I talk about that make it different from these productive kinds, then the kind of motivating actions that one are going to engage in is going to be productive, right? So I do right. want to acknowledge, hey, you can't storm the Capitol without some kind of risk aversion, <laughs> self-believing, and some kind of optimism, you know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but who you going to try to kill when you're there? I mean, that's going to have right. a lot to do with the kind of anger that you have, right? And so, you know, yeah, people should be scared of that white rage that they witness at the Capitol. Um, right. But only people who don't want to transform their society for the good should be scared of the kind of anger that the IDB Wells of 2022 has, um, has, has today. And then and then I, I, can, I go on and then the kind of last argument that I give before I offer up anger management techniques, uh, um, talk about how anger can also, uh, you know, and, and having the kind of loading and rage that I talk about allows one to be what I call kind of a resistant figure that with loading and rage, mm-hmm. one is able to resist certain kind of what I call racialized or, or racial rules in society. Uh, right. It simply says only white men can be angry because of the value that we ascribe to their lives. Um, right. And so, I, you know, I simply say that you don't even have to go to a protest. Um, but just by having ang- anger, you don't have to be a charismatic leader, but just by be- having loading and rage, there's certain, certain ways in your life that you can engage in resistance because of this particular emotion. Um, right. And so that's why, that's why I think it's essential. Um, and that's why right. I think we should get rid of it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, and I want to get to the, to the um, uh, you know, to the social rules disruption uh, uh, in a minute. Um, you... In, in describing or arguing for the value of the the sort of fuel aspects of Lordy and Rage, um, you give some attention to critics who might say, well, wait a minute, expressions of rage can be counterproductive because of the effect that they, you know, they, you know, expressions of rage, particularly black rage is going to scare people, right? <laughs> right it's going right. to turn people off, right. right? Can you say something a little bit about your uh, engagement with, 
with that kind of critique? Oh yeah. So you know, it goes back. <laughs> it goes back to Audre Lord, right? So like I said, right. her her essay uses of anger, and the very beginning of the essay, a white woman comes to her after she gives a speech, and this is Audre Lord kind of recounting it. And she comes back and she get, gives a speech and a white woman comes to her. You know, you give these talks and people come talk to you afterwards. And the white woman <laughs> says the following. Tell me how you feel, but don't say it so loudly or I cannot hear you. Right. And Audre Lorde's response, you know, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, is, it, is it the tone or is it the angry response uh, that bothers you? Or is it the message um, that's going to force you to change your life? Right. And, you know, that, that, you know that, that has always stuck with me, right? That, like, you know, we really have to kind of consider, as much as we like to put the responsibility on the angry person and, and their tone and the way that they're expressing their anger, and that's the reason why we can't really receive it. And that's why the powers that be won't receive it. So calm it down, tone it down, you know, kind of cause mm-hmm. for civility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I do like kind of changed my thinking on this. And, 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 you know, for me, it's like, listen, if you have a problem with some being a- someone being angry, you know, expressively, that the fact that another black boy was killed on the street, you have to be a, kind, a certain kind of person to say that I can only hear you if you change the way you're speaking, right? It, it, right. it simply says, one is not really, I mean, we can make these assumptions, one is really not attuned, one is really not sympathetic, right? right. Really, one is really doesn't consider that life valuable. Right. I mean, I don't know about you, Bob, but there's there's moments, you know, as being a friend. I mean, one of the, the roles of a friend is to, you know, to be a listening ear um, to a whole bunch of experiences and troubles that your friends are having. And there's no doubt that, you know, they have you know, they're going through stuff and they come to you. And I never tone police my friends. If anything, I'm right. the one that's going to be pumping them up and like, what, girl? I'm so like, I'm the one that's saying you have a right to feel this way, right? Because it would just be totally insensitive. It's like, well, tell me how you feel. I know your grandmother just died, but can you like stop sobbing so extremely or I cannot hear you, right? We wouldn't right. do that in our relationship. So why do we do that when it comes to certain kinds of issues, right? Um, right. And so one of the things I say, hey, people think that anger is going to run away allies or anger is going to run away the powers that be. No, anger is only going to run away certain kinds of allies and i basically say well if if the anger is the problem and not the issue then you're you're not yet ready to be an ally um right. so that's kind of my, my response um to that and, and there's a lot of kind of counterproductive kind of critiques that i respond to um in brief at the end of at the end of that chapter and, and those are probably one of the that's probably one of the most popular ones that really, really, really bothers me. I think, I think kind of connected to, to that, we always think um, that uptake is always required for anger to be productive. So, um, right. you know, the powers that be must listen to me. They must listen to, you know, what I have to say. And so, you know, make your anger look a certain kind of way. And I'm just reminded by the work of uh, Maria Lagunas and, you know, anger is not always for the wrongdoer. Like there's one kind of anger that is for that, right? That's that protest piece. But like I said before, if anger also ascribes value and remind marginalized people that you are valuable, my anger is for them and and not necessarily for you, right? So kind of decenter in the wrongdoer and decenter in the powers that be that just because you don't listen doesn't necessarily mean that it's counterproductive because it doesn't hang always on your uptake. Right. And I I guess that... um, uh at least I detected this in, 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 in some of the responses to these sort of critiques that, you know, expressions of rage, you know, erect obstacles, um, you know, that, um, 
the 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 issues about tone and expression and heat say well the message can't be so easily dis distinguished from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know from the high, from the high tech you know if right. if if I, if I tone it down i'm not delivering the message anymore right? right the message is not so easily distinguished or separated or detached from the emotional uh, articulation of it. Does that seem right? No, that seems sounds right. You also sound very Lordian right now. I wanna, uh, I'm reminded of a passage uh, from the essay, and, and you know, uh, uh, she says, uh, "This is this is Audre Lorde here." She says, um, um, "I cannot." Basically, I'm trying to get her exact words right. <laughs> um, <laughs> she says, "I would not hide." She was like, "I would not." In some ways, we can say that she says, "I would not tone it down to spare your guilt." Um, and right. then she says that doing so trivializes yeah. um, our efforts. Yeah. Right. That yeah. is her words. Exactly. It trivializes our efforts. Um, um, so, you know, I really am so happy to, to, to see and to hear that there's a lot of people who are writing about civility um, and calling mm-hmm. attention to kind of the asymmetry that goes on with those particular calls and always the constant movement of what those civil standards are. Because I think that's a yeah. topic that truly, really, really, really needs, really needs to be addressed. Oh, absolutely. Um, great. So can we get back then to the, the sort of feeling rules, the, the social rules about feelings <laughs> right, uh, right. and the two commandments that you, uh, <laughs> that you say that Lordy and Rage uh, 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 disrupts? Yeah. So, so I'm going to try to give like a feminist, uh, feminist philosophy of emotion uh, 101 <laughs> because I, I, do borrow, <laughs> I do borrow heavily from that literature to kind of, sure. to kind of apply it to the racial context. So you know, a lot of stuff in the literature, feminist philosophy literature, uh, that's from the 80s and the 90s, have basically kind of described anger, particularly when experienced by women, as what we call kind of outlaw emotions. Um, and the reason why they're called outlaw emotions or kind of in, to, to engage in these particular emotions is what, what some philosophers describe as an act of kind of affective transgression. Is a re- mm-hmm. Because there's feeling rules, right? There, there's particular rules that some, um, that some people of certain gender sh- are allowed to express and other people are not. So men are allowed to express anger. Mm-hmm. Um, when they do so, you know, we applaud them. It's considered a virtue. Women, anger, women are supposed to express compassion, <laughs> mm-hmm. forgiveness. When they do so, they are particular, you know, rewarded, right? We learned that, right? There's, there's a wonderful book called Rage Becomes Her um, that came out a couple of years ago in response to to the Me Too movement, and you know, it's take, talking about anger in the context of, of gender injustice, and it talks about how we learn these particular rules as, as, as you know, these gender-related uh, emotional rules as children. So we, we right. teach our we teach our young girls, you know, it's not beautiful to be to be angry, right? It's not feminine to be angry, right? So we, you know, right. um, we teach our boys, you know, not to cry. Like we're already teaching them these these particular feeling rules, and people are you know rewarded um, and punished if they express or violate these particular, these particular rules. So I want to say, well, there's also racial rules, racial feeling rules. There are some mm-hmm. emotions that are fit for certain kind of racialized bodies and that can be rewarded or um, punished as a result. Um, so white men can be angry. Kavanaugh was had reminded of, of that, of that uh, very, very yeah, right. recently. And yeah. those, those, those senators reminded us that, right. Um, even white women that we call Karens can be angry on the, on the police phone calls. Right? Mm-hmm. And they, you know, you know, police will come out and be attuned to them no matter how irate they make it. Um, but it still is the case that black people cannot be angry, right? They're supposed to be kind of long-suffering, kind of patient, et cetera, et cetera. And they will be rewarded, and that is not die as a result, right? So these, right. it's these, these, these rules that, that are set up in that particular, particular way. 
And not only do we evaluate emotions differently, but we also read emotions lead different on racialized bodies, right? So I basically say, you know, we want to make sense of like the stereotype of the angry black woman. I mean, this is stereotypes is a way to kind of reinforce those, those particular rules, what I call kind of feeling rules in a racialized context. But I introduce racial rules. So I just don't say that these are just feeling rules in the context of race. I say, hey, these are racial rules. Um, because it's not just people telling you what feelings to have, but beyond, behind these feelings are also kind of uh, values, normative values, mm-hmm. status quo values, white supremacist values that kind of go mm-hmm. with that and kind of behavioral kind of commands um, that's connected to that. So here's an example. So there's two what I call racial rules that I lay out. One racial rule is um, um, uh, thou should not have a right to white male rage. Right. Right. And I do say it in very New James, <laughs> King James Version language. Um, right. Thou should not have a right to white male anger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically said, well, well, if that's the rule in our society, which is the rule, right? Women can't have it. <laughs> white women can't have it right. up to a certain extent, up to a certain extent. If a white w- mm-hmm. woman is angry to black men, for example, we go back to the to Kristen Cooper Central Park, then mm-hmm. that is allowable. Uh, but all things considered, you know, white women can't, um, but can in a racial context. But black people, Muslim, you know, as racialized as, as Arab, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cannot have, have the kind of anger that we allow white men to get away with. And so right. one of the things that I say is that when you decide to still be angry, knowing that this rule exists, because we know that this rule exists, and then you decide that you're going to be angry in spite of it. Right. You are breaking that 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 racial rule. Right. Um, and, and, and there's several ways that I kind of suggest. Right. You're, you're basically saying um, in doing so and in, in resisting these particular rules, you're basically saying that white men are not the only people that have a right to value and claims to mm-hmm. respect. Um, you're also kind of when I talk about a resistant figure, you're resisting kind of this kind of policing that says, um, that I can't fully express um, my, my, my emotions and make certain kind of, kind of claims. So I'm resisting that kind of powers that be that wants to shut me up and to, to silence me. Um, and, and, and so that's the kind of way that I kind of, uh, kind of set that, that particular argument up, that given we have these racial rules in society, just having the anger that you, you break that rule and the racist assumptions and the behavioral kind of uh, assumptions that come along, that come along with that. Fabulous. Um, so uh, th- there's a whole chapter that is subtitled um, A Note to Allies. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a chapter about rage renegades. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the special note to allies? So it's interesting because I, I, I remember giving a talk when I was still working on the book. I gave a talk to um, some Pixie students at Penn State. So this is a program um, mm-hmm. that women philosophers have created to diversify the discipline. And so they invite a, a kind of a, a diverse undergrads to Penn State, also to um, MIT, MIT, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, for the summer and, and, and get them exposed to philosophy and philosophy professors, et cetera, et cetera. And I, so at the time, I'm giving a talk on the last chapter, what I take will be the last chapter, which is the anger management mm-hmm. chapter. I'm giving a talk to students. Um, and I remember a young brother raises his hands and he's like, well, what about white people? Now, mind you, um, the, the last chapter of the book, talk about just general techniques that I think that we can incorporate to make sure mm-hmm. that anger stays motivational, that it stays appropriate, that it stays resistant, right? So I'm not telling people to get rid of it, but these are ways to keep it, keep the features that I suggest that makes loading and race right. unique. 
And so, you know, give and talk, think I'm doing a good job, think I fully like have like answered all the objections that, that was going to that's going to make that chapter kind of useful. And he, he asked me, you know, what about what about white people? And I'm like and I remember my response to him. I'm not writing to white people. <laughs> if they don't get it, they just don't get it, right? And so that was my immediate response. And I was like, well, I give that, I leave that up to you. Young man is now, you know, a graduate student in philosophy. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But um, I was like, I'm just going to leave that up to someone else's project, which is probably a popular response that we always say when we don't want to do something. We say, oh, that's not my project. But, you know, right. that stuck with me. Um, it really just stuck, stick with me. And I thought, well, before I get to the general kind of anger management notion, is there something, I think there is something that I need to say to white folk who are allies in the struggle. And I'm using allies in quotes because I know that the term itself is controversial, but it's pointing to right. a particular group. Um, is it something that I can say? I, I do think that there are things that they can do with their rage that can be counterproductive um, to the anti-racist struggle and also reify the very uh, system um, that they're fighting against. And perhaps what I can attempt to do is to highlight uh, some of those concerns um, to make sure that they don't, they don't repeat it. And that can be kind of a, a kind of, an, I want to say an asterisk, um, but kind of a, a certain kind of level of anger management that they need to be attuned mm-hmm. to before we go to the general stuff. And so simply what I, I call them rage renegades and I call them rage renegades because these are, I mean, I use white folks, but you know, it's, it, you know, I, I, from a general st- standpoint, we can say that rage renegades would be any kind of anger that I have in response to the oppression, oppression that has hit one group more, more intensely than the other. And I'm not a member of that particular group. So I was a rage renegade. I am a rage renegade to the Asian American community who mm-hmm. for the last few years have experienced, um, anti-Asian hate, um, and violence, mm-hmm. um, and, and so kind of use, um, you know, white folks as a, as a descriptor here. But to be a little bit more specific about what makes this phenomenon quite, quite different than in the general context is that, you know, rage renegades are, are, are white folks who are angry at injustice, racial injustice, angry that they live in a racist world. And all of this world is kind of built in order to benefit them. They resist that particular system, right, by being angry at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I still say, hey, white supremacy is a hell of a drug. It's, it's a constant fight, not only for white folk, but also for black folk, for Hispanic folk, for everybody, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's an ideology that can inflict us all. I don't care who you are. And how can right. you make sure that you don't bring those kind of white supremacist kind of beliefs in a way into the anti-racist struggle, particularly, particularly when it comes to anger? So people might think, oh, I have Lordian rage. I'm good. There's no mistakes right. that I can make. Right. Because I got loyalty and rage. Right. My, my anger is saying all lives matter. My anger is, you know, uh, breaking ra- racial rules. My, my, my anger is motivating me to engaging in you know, kind of kind of uh, productive action with other people. I'm good. And I'm saying, no, not not necessarily. So there are two particular, I, I guess, in some ways, there's a variety of ways in which, in which I say that um, allies can go wrong with their anger. Because that's the claim of the book. I mean, there's a lot of literature right. in the book talk about how allies can go wrong, but I specifically want to address how can it go wrong with anger specifically. So one way that it can happen, and I kind of leave some kind of like um, something for the book, if you were to get, you get excited <laughs> about the book, but one of the ways that it could go wrong is when you think that your anger matters more than the anger of the racially oppressed. Right. Um, now, I want to be sympathetic here. We live in a world, and I've already alluded to this, and which, based on your, 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 your racialized body, 
um, your, your, your emotions are going to be read differently and it's going to give, be given a, a certain kind of uptake or lack of uptake based on your, your racialized body. So we know as a, a white man, he can be angry and we will respect it. We'll listen to it. We, we'll take it as to be a little bit more ra- rational, et cetera, et cetera. We know that's not the case for all other people. And so if you live in a society that has already showed you that that's the way it goes, then I want to say that even when you begin to have anger in response to something worthy like an anti-racist struggle cause, you think you're going to lose that kind of thinking? <laughs> you think right. that's automatically going to disappear? Right. And so, you know, so, so what happens when you have loading and rage and you think, even if it's just for a moment, for a second or certain kinds of moments, or, uh, when the film crew comes, when you think in that moment that your anger matters more and it'll be hard not to, particularly when your anger is listened to when the reporter right. puts the mic in your face first. Right. And I think an example right. that I used the Portland example, um, there was an officer, Christopher J. David, I believe that's his name. Um, and he's getting beat with batons and he gets all these interviews and I remember him saying, um, you know, if I was a black naval officer, no one would be interviewing me. And he basically says, I think the focus needs to be off of me and go back to the whole purpose of the protest, which is Black Lives Matter. Wonderful ally. Right. But there are some mm-hmm. people who would have been like, yeah, I got a lot to say. <laughs> keep, keep the camera rolling. <laughs> Right. right. Let me focus on me, focus on my anger. And, you know, I just want to bring attention to that. And there's ways that you can do it in a very extreme way. And there's a way that you can do it in a very subtle way. But I I want to suggest doing it, thinking it, or at least communicating that your anger matters more um, is is undermining the very struggle. And then I just kind of offer up suggestions on when you find yourself in that mode, um, give space. Um, to right. people of color to speak, for example, move to the back of the line, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so it's a kind of grandstanding, would you say? Yeah, I guess one can say, I mean, yeah. so that's yeah. one way, thinking your anger matters more. But there's another instance um, that I call moral anger grandstanding. That, that's more for the signaling purposes, right? Right. Um, right. So you want to use your anger, I call it moral anger grandstanding. Um, you know, you want to, yeah, you do all the more grandstanding stuff, but you do it with anger. And I want to say that that's a kind of different phenomenon. Um, but the, but the suggestions, the prescription, the corrective is quite, is quite, is quite similar. Um, so those are some things that I think can go awry as rage, as rage renegades. And we just need to be conscious of it. Um, right. yeah. Great. So let's, um, you know, the book ends with, uh, anger management. Um, because as you were just saying a moment ago, um, you know, given everything that you've laid out about the value and importance and the fueling aspect of Lordian Rage, there's still constraints or there's still ways in which it can go off the rails and be misdirected or be co-opted. Can you tell us a little bit about the management task right. uh, for Lordian Rage? And it, it, can, it can go wrong because we are human beings. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, my kind of strategy um, – when it comes to learning and rage, when it comes to management is I think about a manager and you know, you've encountered a good manager when that manager um, wants to bring out the very best in you. Um, you know, you've probably perhaps some people have encountered managers who just want to get rid of people. Let's just fire people. Um, hmm. And I think good management is no, I want to use the people that I have and I just want to make sure that I utilize their gifts and bring out the very best in them. And I think when I talk about anger management, I'm not talking about eliminating anger. I'm not talking about bringing anger to a certain kind of temper (laughs) um, that can be read as a kind of civil kind of response. I'm really talking about bringing out the very best of Lodian Rage, right? How how can we make sure that the features that I've talked about in Lodian Rage, that that we are able to maintain these particular features, that it stays appropriate, that it stays motivational, that it stays resistant. And so my strategies, now my strategies are not novel. 
but the way that I use my strategies um, to help us maintain uh, these these positive features is is what I think is is novel. So one of the things that I think um, people are going to be like, duh. But one of the first techniques that I talk about is <laughs> express anger, right? Right. Um, now, expression is good, and there's a variety of ways to express. So why why do we want to express? Well, you know, uh, a lot of people are concerned about uh, maybe kind of worried when I mention expression because they have, at least in their minds, have made angry expression synonymous with kind of like violent expression. And, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of say in the chapter is like, you know, James Baldwin, when he's writing about anger, his only worry when it comes to anger, his criticism of anger, is that he believes that, you know, anger can transform into to hatred, but it can transform into hatred when it's not, when it's unexpressed, right? He's very concerned mm-hmm. about unexpressed anger. Um, right. And one of the things that, that, that um, we know the social psychology literature suggests is that the problem is not violence. We think anger equals violence. No, it's not. It's not that. First of all, there's other emotions <laughs> that are more apt to, you know, lead one to engage in, in in violence. So I don't know why we think that anger is the most concerning thing. Um, but fear, for example. <laughs> um, right. But um, um, one of the things that is often said is that suppress and repress anger uh, can really lead to some problematic things. And so that's why I think expression is, is, is important. If we're really concerned about anger being productive in the ways um, that we need to make sure that even though you got the virtuous loading and rage kind of of, of anger, you want to make sure that you're constantly e- expressing it. I also think that not only does it allow it to to be productive in that particular sense, that particularly if if anger is communicative to a point and we want it to continue to ascribe value to people, um, that right. you know you need to express your anger and whether that's just you know acknowledging it to yourself, acknowledging it to others. I mean that's a way uh, that is constantly doing the kind of things that I suggest it does, uh, given its community, his community, uh, community aspect. So expression is important to me in maintaining these positive features. Another kind of technique that I kind of lay out is the importance of getting in solidarity with other folk. Um, right. So one of the things that we know, you know, listen. I'm not asking people to get with people so we can have a huge rage fest and we can just get angrier, right? But when you're, when you're in solidarity with people, I mean, not only um, if, if one person is fired up, motivated, then we know that we know that motivation is contagious, right? So that's the kind of productive mm-hmm. kind of productive piece. Um, um, but another another thing that we know is that listen, if if I find that my, my loading rage is not appropriate, I got somebody to keep me accountable, hold me accountable to that. Right. Um, right. So there's something about solidarity that can that can do that kind of that can do that work. Another thing that I kind of talk about is the importance of anger management take is the, is the importance of of being very careful of kind of resisting what I call kind of the moral police. What I call a, a general category is kind of silencers. So like the, mm. the moral the moral anger p- police. Right. And trying to recognize when people um, are trying to be in, very insincerely, but but tactically trying to temper your rage and get you to quiet up. Because um, the more critics, mm. they're going to read this book and still say, hey, I'm still against anger. And I'm still going to tell people, you know, to do all those things that Audre Lorde suggests that we shouldn't do. Um, so mm. how can we make sure that we stay away from those people? How can we make sure that those people do not have an effect? Those kind of critics don't have any effect on making us feel shameful of, 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 of the anger. Um, and so I kind of offer up strategies. And it's just recognizing when you have encountered kind of the difference between someone who's an anger police and someone who is a moral critic. So trying to know the difference, because mm-hmm. not everybody who has something to say about your anger is a moral police, um, more anger police. Um, mm-hmm. And then just remind them of certain things 
um, that when you have encountered someone who's trying to to police your anger, um, that you can just remember, as Audre Lorde reminds us, that everything can be used except what is wasteful. And you will need to remember this when you're accused of destruction. I mean, these are her, her words. And so just, mm-hmm. you know, kind of certain kind of strategies for those individuals to say to themselves um, so that they won't be uh, psychologically seduced to get rid of something that I think is very, very important. Those are just some of the strategies that I offer. Yes. Well, Maisha, it's, I, I really, really enjoyed the book. So congratulations oh, on so that. Thank you so much. That means a lot. I'm just trying to be like you, Bob. I'm just trying to be like you. <laughs> that, that means a lot to I'm me. I'm overdoing um, anger. My next book is Overdoing Anger. <laughs> 2025. <laughs> uh, that's fabulous. What? Well, but but you, what is the next book is on forgiveness? Am I right about that? It is, it is. Sorry if I let anyone down by that that title. Next book is on forgiveness, failures of forgiveness. So I'm still kind of doing. Hey, I'm Nietzsche in this this respect that I'm going to do a reevaluation of these emotions. And so, just like I've done the same thing with anger, I want to allow us to kind of think differently about this thing we call forgiveness, and not just forgivers. Um, but us as individuals that participate in the general practice. Uh, so those right. who criticize forgiveness, those who expect forgiveness, um, those who like to use it in, 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 as propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. I'm challenging us all to kind of think very differently and to do differently when it comes to, when it comes to forgiveness. So I'm pretty excited. And that's coming out in the fall of, of, of 2023. All right. Well, Princeton that's University Press. Then. Yeah. Yes. Next year, next year. Um, yeah, I look forward to that. I will um, uh, look forward to reading it. Um, but for now, Maisha, uh, I just want to thank you for for joining me on New Books and Philosophy. Oh, thank you for having me. It was fun. Always fun to talk to you, Bob. <laughs> it's always fun to talk to you. Um, uh, and I want to thank our listeners uh, for joining us, uh, Maisha Cherry and I, for our discussion of Maisha's new book. Uh, it is titled... The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Uh, It was recently published by Oxford University Press. I highly recommend it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.